Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. All right, you know by now patrons heard this episode first. That's because when you join our Patreon, you get episodes one day early, a bonus episode every month, which is ad-free, by the way, priority when requesting a case, and a shout-out on an episode. Speaking of, thanks so, so much, Marina. We're glad to have you. To join the Patreon, click the link in our show notes or go to patreon.com slash Pod. We'll see you there. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of the Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. Big Bear, California, a resort mountain town in Southern California's San Bernardino Mountains, popular with tourists from near and far throughout all the seasons. About 15 miles out of town is the small town of Running Springs. It's there in a ravine off California Highway 330, the body of 28-year-old Corey Desmond was found wrapped in trash bags. Corey was from Redondo Beach, about 100 miles away. The question stood for investigators. How did she end up in a ravine so far away, and who murdered her? This is her story. You still think it's in my head But I'm walking with the dead On February 16, 2009, around 2.20 p.m., the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department responded to a call from the California Highway Patrol. A motorist who had pulled over to take their snow chains off had discovered a body in a ravine. It was off the side of the road on Highway 330. The motorist had flagged down one of the patrol officers that had been manning one of the tire chain checkpoints. By the condition of the scene and the body, first responders were able to glean that the young woman's body had been transported there that the murder had happened somewhere else before it had been left there. This goes without saying truly, but they were also well aware immediately that the person that did this to the woman had a little regard for her, a stone-cold killer. Also, in regards to the scene, the investigators were against the weather. A storm was currently washing away any evidence that they may be able to collect. The weather was so severe that they were afraid the body may be washed away. According to Lieutenant DeCicio, when they first got there, there were tire tracks at the scene, but within minutes, they were washed away. They were gone. Investigators quickly decided it was best to remove the body from the scene altogether. They wanted to avoid the storm compromising the scene and evidence any more than it already had. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. 
just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This is actually a pretty big deal because removing the body is normally the last thing that's done at a scene, at least for Lieutenant DeCicio. And in this case, it was one of the first things they did. The body was transported to the medical examiner's office, and the cause of death was listed as homicidal asphyxiation. A vaginal exam revealed no bruising or any significant findings. No seminal fluid or sperm was found. The blood alcohol concentration of the body was 0.35%, which... For an inexperienced drinker is pretty heavy, but for a more experienced drinker, according to some of the resources, you might be able to function here. But it is a pretty significant level. They then used fingerprints in order to identify who the body was, and they found that it was that of 28-year-old Corey Desmond. Her driver's license also confirmed this. Corey Day Desmond was born March 18, 1980 to Mark and Debbie Desmond. She was born at Torrance Memorial Hospital, and she actually had a hole in her diaphragm at birth. Due to the hole in her diaphragm, she was given 20% chance of survival. And as her find a grave page says, she not only survived, she thrived. She continued to grow up in Southern California's South Bay. She was the type of person that was the life of the party. She was happy, outgoing, adventurous. A family friend calls her feisty and fiercely independent too. Her friend Brittany calls Corey an amazing person and absolutely beautiful. She says that everyone wanted to be her friend and wanted to hang out with her. Corey was more than that, of course, too. She took schoolwork very seriously. She took honors courses at North Torrance High School, where she graduated in 1998, and she went on to attend CSULB, Cal State Long Beach, which, by the way, that's a top 100 school in U.S. news rankings for U.S. public schools of higher education. It's there that she earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, and she eventually wanted to teach someday. But back to February of 29, when Corey had been found murdered. The medical examiner's report stated that Corey had died as a result of strangulation and suffocation. Detective Newport calls her injuries severe. She had bruising on her face and neck, and she had also endured injuries to her head. It was clear that she died at the hands of a violent attack, and Corey had put up a fight for her life. They believe that the attack was sexually motivated because the pants were left in the halfway off position. This is important to note because the ME didn't necessarily find anything that indicated sexual assault, but that does not mean that this attack was not sexually motivated. It was estimated by the ME that Corey's body had been outside between 12 to 36 hours. Unfortunately, because of the weather conditions and the conditions Corey's remains were left in, the ME couldn't even pinpoint a time of death just that estimate for how long it had been outside. Investigators were, of course, tasked with informing the family. Corey had been living with her grandma in Redondo Beach, not far from where she grew up, just about 10 minutes from where her dad lived. It was in the early morning hours that law enforcement made the drive out to Redondo Beach from San Bernardino County to inform her grandma of Corey's murder. Her grandma then calls Corey's dad around 2 a.m. to tell him what was going on. He headed over there immediately. Detectives, of course, start asking questions like if they knew of anyone that might want to do this to her. They had no clue. 
Her family and investigators still didn't even have an idea of how long Corey had been deceased or how she'd wound up almost 100 miles away. Exactly. And on top of that, there's still so much to figure out. And Corey's dad wanted to figure it out. He starts what he calls his own little investigation. With that, he was able to aid in developing the timeline of Corey's last moments. They were able to ascertain that Corey had worked the night of February 14th, Valentine's Day, clocking out from her bartending shift at Beaches in Manhattan Beach around 9.30 p.m. This is just 41 hours before her body was found. Mark was also at the same time searching for Corey's car. He was hoping and wishing that this could give some kind of clue as to what happened to her. It wasn't long after that her blue Jeep Wrangler was found in Redondo Beach on a side street, as if awaiting her return near some bars that Corey typically liked to go to after work. Mark was relieved that when they found the Jeep, he had a piece of his daughter back that might also give investigators more information, a lead to who murdered his daughter. Now that they have the Jeep, I hope they were able to get some leads or some more information about Corey's disappearance. The Jeep was, of course, processed for evidence, as was the immediate area that it was found in, but they didn't really find much. Despite this, it still told investigators something, though. It told them that whatever happened to Corey began in Redondo Beach. Her car still being there means that she never drove up that mountain. Somebody drove her up there. Just like the scene had told investigators and we mentioned earlier as well, a picture of what happened was starting to be painted. Detective Newport recalls that pinpointing this was actually huge for the investigation. And this finding, of course, rocked the community that was already grieving the loss of Corey in Redondo Beach. Between Manhattan Beach and Redondo Beach, Corey was actually a really well-known bartender. Community members would stop investigators like Lieutenant DeCicio, and they would question them about the case's progress, hoping they were getting closer to solving it. On top of grieving Corey, people were living in fear, walking around the area, wondering if the murderer was around. The Daily Breeze's Larry Altman says that on their website, it was flooded with comments expressing outrage and pain over what had happened. Their coverage of Corey's case garnered so much activity on their website that the Daily Breeze decided to cover her funeral, which Larry reminds listeners of his interview that they don't often do. At Corey's funeral services, it was said that the beach cities have lost a daughter. As Corey was laid to rest, Mark and investigators continued the search for answers. One of Corey's friends tells Mark that they had last seen her at Backstreet Lounge in Redondo Beach. This is just about two blocks from where her car was found and about three miles from where she worked in Manhattan Beach. Again, the bar called Beaches. Camera footage from inside Backstreet Lounge showed Corey helping her friends behind the bar and employees and patrons from that night tell a similar story. What's also reported from many patrons that night is that Corey got into a heated situation with some guy at the bar. They were arguing about how this man had treated somebody else at the bar. The story is really not expressed in too much detail in any of the resources, but we do know that it piqued investigators' interest. You can imagine just how piqued those interests became when they discovered that this man that she got in the heated situation with lived just across the street from Backstreet Lounge. Which means he knows the area. So no matter where he went, he could have easily taken note of when Corey left the bar. Investigators wanted to know if he had laid in wait for sure. Even Detective Newport says that they thought this was their guy. So they tracked him down and he admits to getting in the heated situation with Corey, but that's it. He cooperated further, took a polygraph test that he passed, and the warrants and efforts to search his home and vehicle came back with nothing. 
On top of that, he had a strong alibi that ended up checking out and investigators took him off the suspect list. Of course, it didn't end there and investigators located more camera footage to assist in creating Corey's last moments. The footage this time was from the camera outside the bar. They were able to see that Corey left Backstreet Lounge just after closing, 2 a.m. She was alone and had left out the back door that was on Phelan Lane. Basically, this bar is at the corner of Phelan Lane and Artesia Boulevard. In this camera footage, Corey basically walks out of that back door and out of frame. To get a better view of that back door, investigators used footage from a smoke shop called Sandbox Smoke Shop that was on the other side of Phelan to get a different view. They were able to see that Corey turned the corner onto Artesia Boulevard, which is the street that actually holds Backstreet Lounge's address. This isn't a surprise as it's the direction where her Jeep was parked and where her Jeep had been found earlier. So it turns out they did find her Jeep exactly where she left it, as they seem to have suspected. Exactly where she left it. What's interesting, though, is that Corey is captured a block past her Jeep, a block further down Artesia Boulevard, on an ATM's camera at 2.26 a.m. And this is the last time that they were able to mark Corey alive. After this footage, they lose track of where she went or what happened to her. The trail doesn't end here, though, because Corey's friend, Brittany, worked right next to the ATMs that captured her walking by. She worked at this bar called Bogies, and she told investigators that Corey may have been coming to meet her there. They had sort of loosely made plans to hang out after work, and she actually didn't end up hearing from her. So Brittany left from her shift at Bogies that night without ever seeing Corey. The only thing is that Corey really may have been coming to see her. One of the owners confirms that Corey did stop by just minutes after Brittany had left. According to NBC Los Angeles, Corey had shouted through the back door, is Corey, I need to use the bathroom. And she knocked and knocked. Even though Corey was well known around this area, it doesn't seem like she knew the owner that well. And it seems like to the owner, this was just a random patron trying to get back into the bar after closing. And they had a really strict no re-entry policy after 2 a.m. Brittany reminds us tearfully in her interview that she's left to wonder what would have happened had she stayed five minutes longer, which is truly heartbreaking because it's no fault of hers, as we all know. Investigators believed that as soon as Corey left the area of bogeys, she was attacked. Why? Because that's, again, where they lost track of her. She was never found on camera from that night again. Detective Newport says this was like a brick wall for the case. Her dad, Mark, kept the case alive along with investigators, though. He purchased billboards asking for help and information that would lead to an arrest and a $15,000 reward to entice that support. Lieutenant DeCicio says that Mark had a, quote, tremendous impact on the investigation. He was out there all the time. A woman that didn't even know Corey but saw one of the billboards in the area was about to break that brick wall down. She called in anonymously, begging police to look into a man named Tony Perez. The problem was, she didn't give them much more info, just that name. When law enforcement started searching, there were thousands upon thousands of Tony Perez's in Southern California. This made it really difficult to zero in on the right one. That is, until later on, the woman called again. After there had been no movement, she wanted to know why. This time, they learn that her name is Tiffany, and the Tony Perez she's talking about is her 35-year-old boyfriend. Despite Tiffany being scared, she met up with Detective Newport at a park. At this park meeting, Tiffany explains that her boyfriend, who she was already afraid of, started acting suspicious the Saturday night that Corey went missing. 
The pair had had Valentine's Day plans for late in that evening, but Tony ended up not returning home until 4.30 a.m. His excuse to Tiffany was that he'd been drinking at a bar and passed out in his car. Tiffany didn't believe him right away, though. She knew something was off. Her suspicions mounted when Tony didn't come home again the next night. Obviously, Tiffany was upset. They shared a child and ran a home together. Where was he? And once Tony returned this time, he was still acting off. Moreover, he cleaned their white Durango's interior from stem to stern. He never did that, according to Tiffany. They hadn't even owned the necessary cleaning supplies. He had had to go buy them. Then Tiffany got a call from Tony while at work. He informed her, oh, hey, I got us a new car and I turned the Durango in. So despite the fact that they only had three more payments before they owned the car outright, no more car payments, he decides to turn the Durango in and buy an excursion. At least for Tiffany, she'd been looking really forward to not having any car payments at this time. So it really made no sense. And they hadn't even discussed it as a couple, as a household. The final straw for Tiffany was when they took a last minute trip up to Big Bear. And at one point, as they drove on Highway 330, Tony pointed and asked, do you think that's where they found that girl? Tiffany said that during that time, she had an uneasy gut feeling. And thank goodness she listened to that uneasy gut feeling and took notice of those red flags that he was exhibiting because as we know, she alerted authorities. So can we talk a little more about what happened when she met up with Detective Newport at the park? She, of course, expressed all of that to Detective Newport and he believed her right away as she told him her story. Now equipped with more information on the exact Tony Perez in question, law enforcement proceeded with a background check. This Tony Perez had no criminal history and held a job and was a dad to a son that he shared with Tiffany. So investigators had to proceed gently, if you will. So under the guise of just conducting a routine neighborhood canvas for information that may help Corey's case, investigators knocked on Tiffany and Tony's door. Tony was calm and claimed that he didn't know anything about Corey or her disappearance. With this stonewalling, if you will, detectives had to find hard evidence linking Tony to Corey's murder, more than just a tip from his girlfriend. They started this search with the Durango. They tracked it down and they processed it for evidence. The driver's seat was taken out and this area surrounding was sprayed with Blue Star, a blood reagent that claims to detect blood traces with dilutions up to 0.001%. Once it was sprayed, Lieutenant DeCicio said it lit up. They didn't know who's yet, but there had clearly been blood on the floor of that Durango. With that, they were able to pull Tony in for questioning about it. This is where he started to change his story from... I don't know Corey or anything about her disappearance. He said that maybe he did see Corey outside Bogies that night. Remember, this is the bar that she wasn't allowed into after she left Box Street Lounge. He said that he might have whistled at some girl outside the bar that night around 2.30 a.m. Lieutenant DeCicio states poignantly about this questioning of Perez that he believed that, quote, every story he told, every lie he told had a ring of truth to it. And you had to determine what was the lie, and what was the ring of truth. As investigators continue to speak with him, his story changed again. He said that, well, I found Corey laying in a weird position under a streetlight just south of Bogies. He said when he discovered her that she was already dead and he was too afraid to call 911. Detectives not totally buying it indulge him and have him take him to the place where he found her. On the night of October 8th, 2009, they record him explaining how he found Corey. He shows them how he tried to 
get her attention, shake her awake, but that she felt cold, already dead. Lieutenant DeCicio got on the ground and asked Sim to show him exactly how he tried to shake her awake. This is where it takes an even more sinister turn. As he reenacted, trying to shake Corey awake, he put his hands on Lieutenant DeCicio's throat. The lieutenant, of course, wasn't expecting that at all. Who tries to shake someone awake with their hand on their throat? This made no sense. Well, in his story to investigators, he said that he put Corey's body in his car and went home to bed. He then got up the next day and went to work with Corey's body still in the Durango. After work, he says he wrapped her in those garbage bags and drove up the mountain, dropping her body off where it was found in that ravine. Lieutenant DeCicio says no innocent person puts a dead body in their car and goes to sleep and work the next day. That being said, Tony was arrested that night and charged with first-degree murder. The next morning, bright and early, they took Tony up to the spot where Corey had been found. They made it up that mountain before 8.30 a.m. It's here that Tony admitted Corey was actually alive when he found her, just passed out. He claims that as he tried to help wake her up, she freaked out and he accidentally killed her. Detectives weren't really buying that accident, though, and when the blood from the Durango was a positive match for Corey, they knew this wasn't an accident. Tiffany says that the confirmation of her suspicions about her boyfriend hit her like a ton of bricks. It was, of course, even more emotional for Corey's father after eight months of searching, hoping, and waiting for answers. The trial for Tony began in July of 2011. The defense held the theory that Tony was trying to help her. She woke up, freaked out, and he unintentionally strangled her. The prosecution says this was no accident, holding that Tony came upon Corey that night and killed her in a sexually motivated attack by strangling and smothering her. The DA went so far as to even demonstrate just how long and painful a death by strangulation really is. It can take three to four minutes, so the DA used a stopwatch to show the jury just how long three minutes really is. Her intention was to help them realize how long Tony would have had to choose to kill her or not, to let her keep her life. After one day of deliberations, on July 27, 2011, Tony was found guilty of first-degree murder, and in that following September, he was sentenced to 25 years to life. Mark says during the trial, what he saw in regard to Tony was an absolute coward. I want to end with a few notes from Corey's family and friends. Her father says, she was beautiful. She was my life. And her mom says, she will be missed every day of my life. And finally, Corey's friend Ron says in a beautiful quote, Corey was an endearing soul. She was a fireball of energy, laughter, love, and attitude. She really touched a lot of people. Her beautiful smile, long lashes, contagious laughter, and spirit will be deeply missed, but never forgotten. And that's where we'll leave this episode. Until next time, you know where to find us. At the Murder Diaries pod on TikTok and Instagram at the Murder Diaries pod request at gmail.com and the Murder Diaries podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and give us five stars. It helps us keep spreading these stories. Your five stars and positive reviews mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.